I was considering doing the whole thing in an English accent and then hoping to come on later with a regular accent. Like a second time? Yeah, and then see if anyone notices, but <laughs> I have a terrible English accent, so mm. we won't do that. And no one would notice. Right. That's, that's not how internet works. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Ebes Kabaisi, developer here in our Boston office. Ebes, thanks so much for joining us. Really excited to be here. Awesome. So, Ebes, a thing happened in my world mm-hmm. yesterday. It wasn't a good thing. My rubies stopped working, all of them. Oh no, why was that? Uh, it's mostly my fault. I like half switched from Cherubi to ASDF, mm-hmm. version managers for all of these sort of things. I love Cherubi. It was good at what it did, but ASDF manages all the things, and it seems to be the direction we're heading, but... Oh, I broke everything. Oh, no. Yeah, uh, I also recently switched to ASDF, and so far it's been good. I think it is very good, but I was a couple versions back in the operating system, which uh, Matt Sumner, a recent guest on this show and the other development director here in Boston, has been somewhat merciless in his his commentary on my lack of upgrading my operating system. Uh, and then, like, my Tmux versions and Vim versions <laughs> and Homebrew, everything. Just last night was burn it all down. Uh-huh. Not actually burn it all down, but try some upgrades and reinstall some Xcodes, but I, I think it's good now. Yeah? How long How long did that take? Uh, it was like an hour for the install, and then it did that thing where, so the computer restarts and it's going through the nice OSX computer screens, saying like, oh, in iCloud, we're setting that up, and the iCloud one just hung, just like spinning, <laughs> prog- uh, spinning little indicator. I let that go for another hour. See, like, are you going to work yourself out there, friend, or is this, is this yeah. a forever problem? Seemed like a forever problem, so I did the hard reset of hold down the power button. And then it started back up and was okay, and I just kind of kept installing the next thing. And well, That's good. Yeah. Wouldn't have expected that to work, but uh, <laughs> I guess, you know, turn it off and on again. Always works. It's always a terrifying experience going through that, but I got to the point where, like, enough things weren't working and stuff was... Like, oh, this doesn't work on that version of the operating system. Like, oh, wow, I really let this one get away from me. Was there anything else that kind of encouraged you to upgrade? Or was it like dark mode or anything like that that you're looking forward to? Nothing at the operating system level. No, no, I'm I'm very bored. Like, I use my Mac machine very much like it's a Linux box. I'm in the terminal or in the browser basically 100% of the time. There's a couple of niceties, I guess, that I use. But the vast, vast majority of the time, I'm in those sort of things. But it was... I was starting to get towards end of life on some things, sure. I think, and that's not a place that's, I want to be. That's never where you want to be now. I forget. There was something in particular that it hit a wall. It was probably something in the JavaScript ecosystem because uh, actually a topic that I would love to dig <laughs> sure. into with yeah. you is that world moves so quickly. Very quickly. Uh, especially in contrast to, like, there was a recent discussion that happened this week where some folks were calling out Ruby for moving too slowly, mm-hmm. and Matt's actually responded on Twitter with what I found to be a very impassioned but also empathetic summary of like, yeah, but it's hard. Yeah. And getting these things right is incredibly difficult. And like the other language that we've both spent some time in recently is Elm. And Evan, the creator of Elm, took a long time to go from version 018 to 019. And there's mm-hmm. some people that were like, what's going on there? But the contrast to that is the JavaScript world, which you and I spent a bunch of time in recently. And what are your thoughts on, I don't know, programming languages and pace of innovation and all oh, that kind boy. of stuff? Uh, I did see the thread that I think originally started on Reddit uh, about Ruby and moving too slowly. And 
It was really nice to see some more empathetic voices responding there, because I think that's one of the things we definitely need. But talking about the speed of programming languages in general, I really like things that kind of march along at a very slow and methodical pace. Mm -hmm. Uh, I recently had been working on, as you mentioned, the JavaScript project, and I was just kind of blown away with how fast things moved. And mostly it was because it just made things a little bit difficult for me in order to try and solve problems that I had where I maybe encountered an error or something or some package you know, didn't behave as, as I expected. And Googling those errors becomes almost impossible mm-hmm. where you would, you, you know, you end up finding a GitHub issue that was updated three minutes ago or, you know, an hour ago. And it's like, yeah, we'll release another version tomorrow. Which and is nice that there is movement at the front edge of this absolutely. wave. But yeah. I've definitely seen other situations where it's like, you know, four years ago, someone said, yeah, I'll work on this in a Ruby gem. And there's no update since then. So it is nice to see those changes, but there's, I think, pros and cons on both sides. Yeah. I don't know if this is a fair characterization, but this is at least the feeling that I have having worked in some of these different communities is the JavaScript world has a higher tolerance for things being broken. Mm -hmm. The amount of errant warnings and compiler messages and things like that that will stream by in a console that are people like, oh no, that doesn't mean it didn't work. That's just, there are some warnings. Right, that's just what it does. And like comparing the output of running bundle or bundle install in a Ruby project versus either npm install or yarn install. It's just sort of night and day in the the noise that that is present in the one. But the noise that people seem to have a filter and and not not dig into and not say like, oh, like I've seen people on Ruby projects where if there is anything other than a sea of green dots being emitted from the test suite, like that is enemy number one. I'm one of those people. If if there's a warning, a deprecation or any sort of like hello message, I'm like, nope, that we're not, we're not using that gem anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You are dead to me. You cannot. Yeah. Or we need to upgrade or ideally there's an upgrade path and things like that. But It is interesting, but at the same time, like there's a lot of cutting edge things happening in that world. Mm -hmm. We had John Rezig on a few episodes back and I asked a similar question to him and I really liked his answer of the innovation is good, but the rate of adoption should probably calm down. And I really liked that as a balanced view on it. I think, and that's, I think that's important to realize is that there are two aspects of this. There is the innovation of the technologies themselves. And then there's the businesses that are, you know, that have real users and real developers that need to actually work in these languages. And Adopting things too quickly may take you down the wrong path, or it may end up, you know, slowing down your actual velocity as you're developing things. And so I think it's really important to take the time to, you know, sort of do your research and make sure that it's the path you want to follow mm-hmm. as you adopt new things that, you know, the next shiny toy that comes out. One of the, the adages that we seem to adhere to here at ThoughtBot is we're building on known stable things that we have had success with in the past, and we maybe have one or two new things that are coming in. Yep. But not everything is new. We're not like, all yeah. right, this is uh, it's a JavaScript and a thing and a thing and a thing and another thing. Uh, and I feel like I don't want to like characterize JavaScript as exclusively this. You can do the same thing in Ruby. Mm-hmm. You could build a Rails system that is fractured into a ton of pieces and using message pack and Avro and protobufs sure. and, and build an entirely different system than what the team has built before. So it is totally possible to do that in all of those ecosystems. But again, in terms of what are the norms, mm-hmm. Ruby and Rails are boring in a very good way, I, I think. think. I think that was another interesting thing that John Resig said, which was introducing new things makes it hard to onboard new developers. And that wasn't really something I had considered when I was listening to that episode. And it really kind of struck a chord with me that it's a lot easier to onboard people to something that they know and maybe introduce one or two new things you know, as the needs specifically call for it. Yep. 
how to measure that and how to know when the needs are specifically <laughs> calling for it. That's the magic. The That's, it depends. And, sure. But some of the technologies that uh, we've been poking around with, I'm interested in getting your impression of them. Uh, you've recently worked both with TypeScript and with Elm. So yep. two strongly typed languages targeting the front end, targeting the JavaScript space, but providing that additional layer of type safety. Uh, I'm interested in both your thoughts on them individually and then sort of to contrast them. And what would you recommend at this point? What what makes sense to you in that world? Sure. So my first foray into the sort of the front end languages uh, was with Elm. And I came in not knowing virtually anything. And thankfully, I had sort of a, a great tutor. I was on a project with Joel, uh, who also works in the Boston office. And um, learning Elm was such a vastly different experience for me from learning Ruby or anything like that, where having a compiler at your back watching everything and sort of telling you when things are invalid, when things are working correctly, that was such a tremendous sort of paradigm shift for me that it took a little time to get used to. But in the end, it was it was a really welcome experience, and it's something I, I'm looking forward to the next project where I get to work with Elm. I was working on a TypeScript project just recently, and while it had some of the similar feelings, it didn't quite feel like it had the sort of streamlined approach that Elm did. Things seemed a little more fractured and a little more choose your own adventure, <laughs> whereas Elm definitely has a, this is how you should be using it, or this is how we intend Elm to be used. And I think part of the reason for that is Evan's voice is fairly strong and, and fairly guiding in how he expects Elm programs to look and feel. And so I think there is a benefit to that. On the TypeScript side, though, it's very powerful. And I was really impressed with the ability it has to sort of allow you to create different types and to be able to work with those types in ways that I did not expect. (laughs) Being able to say, like, oh, I want all of these types except for this one and that sort of thing and have that be encoded into the compiler and the compiler understand that was a very new thing to me. I think I'm going to speak way past my actual level of knowledge, but I think from a power or expressiveness standpoint, I think TypeScript is actually a much more powerful type system, Mm -hmm. but it has a bunch of escape hatches and is intended to layer over JavaScript. So it's interesting in that I think you can do the fully typed, very well constrained thing using TypeScript. But I think that's probably also very rare in actual TypeScript usage because it has so many escape hatches and it's it's much closer to JavaScript. You're able to consume and interact with JavaScript libraries so much more readily that it's so hard to maintain those boundaries and not have weakly typed things sort of leak into your domain model. And Elm, for better or for worse, forces you into that world and does not have... Right. There, there is no 99%. It's, right. It's 100%. But that means when it compiles, it works. TypeScript does not have that guarantee. Yeah. I, I should mention, though, that I mean, Elm does have a bit of an escape hatch where you can communicate with JavaScript mm-hmm. through ports and that sort of thing. So if you do have a small portion of your application where you want to use Elm, that's totally possible. It's not everything must be Elm. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some interaction, but that interaction is guarded, mm-hmm. right? So it, it does enforce the types that come through that sort of membrane that you're passing stuff back and forth through. I've actually not worked with ports in Elm, so I'm interested to actually dig into this just a tiny Mm -hmm. bit. When you have values that are crossing through a port, do you have to provide a parsing or some sort of function such that the arbitrary input that's coming through, you are demonstrating that it's of the correct type? Or are you just saying, I'm going to get a number here and please pass it to my function that expects a number and treat that as a compiled true thing? I believe it's the latter. And... uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe that you will effectively get an error 
if you say pass a string when your port expects a number. Oh, interesting. Um, You'll get a runtime error. I believe so. Will you get a runtime error at the port or will the like will it say you pass the wrong type of value into this or will it be a runtime error deeper in your code? I think it'll be at the port. So effectively, okay. if you pass a number and it's expecting a string or vice versa, the Elm runtime will immediately say, hey, this is invalid. We can't progress from here. Okay. That seems like a fine, like if the value were actually able to make it in and start running right, around and, and that would around all the way inside. Yeah. Because then all those assumptions of truth and correctness that I get from a type signature in Elm would suddenly be in question. And we don't want yep. that. Yep. But at this point, is it safe to say that you're pro strongly typed things if you're spending time in the front end land? Absolutely. It's interesting. If you had asked me that a year ago, I probably would have said no, mm -hmm. mostly because for the last, I don't know, three or four years, I've been using Ruby and I really like its, you know, duck typing and very mm -hmm. friendly. But as soon as I started using strong types, it became immediately clear how much of my previous code was either perhaps incorrect in subtle ways that I wasn't expecting, or I just had to spend more time fixing or thinking of edge cases in Ruby land that just simply aren't possible in a strongly typed language. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me because I, I had a similar sort of arc when I thought of dynamic languages and I thought of duck typing particularly of, well, I want my code to be flexible and I want this method or function to be able to work with a bunch of different things. I want it to be generic. I thought that that was incompatible with strongly typed functional programming sort of ideas. And it turns out that that was not accurate. Right. That you just end up encoding the different option, the different, like, this is a function that takes a string or a number and returns a string. And being able to say that having that flexibility in the type system is actually really interesting because you don't actually want anything in the world or it's rare that you, well, actually you can say explicitly, I don't care what it is. I just care that it has this function, a function right. with the signature, right. but it can be any other, like, I don't care about the rest of the shape. Yep. And I was surprised as I started to work with strongly typed systems that they had that going on. Yeah, I think that was one of the the really powerful things that kind of clicked for me as well of saying, well, you have to handle all possible scenarios that you've explicitly told me about, mm -hmm. and you don't have to handle those scenarios that you may not know about. So if, if I'm expecting a string or a number and I pass in a float, I'm going to get a compiler error versus in duct taping, well, you just kind of have to hope that somebody passes in the right thing, mm -hmm. and otherwise you're going to get a runtime error. It's also interesting to me, as I started working with strong type systems and then I came back and I was writing methods, I was like, you know, right now as I'm writing this method, I know a lot. There's a lot like, I definitely expect you to pass a string, but I'm not writing that into my code. I'm not enforcing that. I'm not constraining the system in any way, despite the fact that that is a very true and real constraint in the world. And so it's interesting. It's one of those things that once you see the world in this new way that as I come back to it, I'm like, huh, I wish I could really get some, some types up yeah. in this. And I think that's one of the things that types help is extra communication. So mm -hmm. one of the things that we have to do a lot is communicate through code. And types is just another means to that end. So I can indicate to you, hey, I expect this particular string to be the ID of a user. And in a strongly typed language, you actually can enforce that anytime after you present a function with a user's ID, if you pass that further down into other functions, you're guaranteed that that is actually a user's ID and not maybe some other arbitrary string. Mm -hmm. um, at least in Elm, there's definitely ways to do this. And I assume in TypeScript there are as well. I haven't actually implemented that particular thing. But it's another means to communicate intent. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Ruby, you might have a keyword argument that just says user. Yeah. And we have these conventions where we assume that's going to be an object of type user. But that's not always the case. And there's nothing that's really going to enforce that. I imagine you've also probably run into the situation where you're working in a system where there are different code paths that can come into a similar method and one expects a user, which is a user object. 
Another expects a struct that's sort of like a user, yeah, but has yep. some of the methods, but not all of them. Another sometimes just has an ID of a user that then expects to be looked up. And you yeah. have those sort of things. And those, especially when they get more and more subtle, like, oh, this is actually just a hash of user data. And we expect the function to work with both of them. Those are the ones where I find a type system to be incredibly valuable. Or like, it's an array of objects, and each object has a, oh, God, I get those wrong constantly. <laughs> sure. Yeah, those are the cases where it's certainly possible to do those things in Ruby. It just requires extra thought, right? Mm -hmm. We just we have to think about it in a very deep manner. And this is when developers are saying, like, hey, I'm in the zone, I'm in the flow. It's usually because you're thinking of these really hard things, trying to keep a giant like object graph in your head of, okay, if it comes in this way, it's this thing. If it comes in the other way, it's mm -hmm. this other thing. And being able to relieve some of that burden and putting it into the type system both helps you as an individual while you're programming and helps your teammates or coworkers in being able to communicate that intent or the data itself through the code. Yeah. I'm a big believer in this world and I keep sort of exploring it. At the same time, the verbosity of Elm code is interesting to me. And at the other end of the spectrum, the looseness of TypeScript code. Realistically, there are ways to solve both of them in those languages, but they, they sort of tend towards that. That's I guess the norm. I, I don't want to like characterize them as that being true, but mm -hmm. my experience in working with both of them is roughly those. And I think both are sort of converging towards a better middle. TypeScript's getting stronger and more correct and more of the world is being written in TypeScript. A surprising amount. 50% of people, according to the state of JS. Yep. That was, survey, a, that was, I was surprised by that. But, mm -hmm. and similarly, I think Elm is getting a little bit more flexible and considering like higher kind of types and other generic sort of functionality, but I want this future. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, but I think we've also seen some of that in, in the Ruby land where there are people clamoring for types and they're, mm -hmm. they're asking for some type safety. And I think it's simply a matter of people having written in other languages and experienced that and, ex and everyone wants the best of all the worlds, yeah. right? And there's no reason we shouldn't, but it's, it's other than it's hard. Exactly. And other and than there's always trade-offs and optimization. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's, you know, bring it all the way back. That was, I think, Matt's point of, hey, yep. it's really hard to consider every angle. Yep. And as a language designer, that's what you have to do. And I 100% empathize with the people that are, that are solving these problems. And, and I really appreciate all the work that they've put into to making my life easier. Absolutely. And like particularly, I think Matt's ended that sequence with highlighting the negativity or the like the intensity of some of the feedback that's been coming in and being like, just so we're clear, I'm a human. We're all humans. Right. And please be nice. I think this is how we lost Guido, yeah. referring to yep. Python's uh, The Benevolent Dictator for Life, who has since backed away. And like that, that was an amazing, I was astonished when that happened because like For Life was in his title. It was a humorous title referencing Monty Python, but it was still, I think, a real thing. Sure. And now he's not there anymore. And so, yeah, we should be nice to people. Absolutely. Be kind and understand that we're humans and... Open source is such a complicated world. We're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor. This episode of The Bike Shed is sponsored by OneMonth.com. As you know, we here at ThoughtBot believe in the power of online education and particularly have our Upcase platform where we've shared tons of tutorials and training material over the years. But all of that content is targeted more at intermediate and advanced developers. OneMonth.com takes a different approach and they are the best place to learn how to code in just one month. Perfect for those who are starting out. Their courses have helped over 60,000 students go from knowing zero about coding to building programs in languages like Python, Ruby, and JavaScript. OneMonth.com graduates have gone on to get jobs at prestigious startups like Airbnb, Instagram, and Spotify. OneMonth.com's courses are easy to follow with step-by-step -step video tutorials, instructor-led with weekly assignments reviewed by your instructor, and results-driven with each student graduating the course with a portfolio of projects to show prospective employers, as well as a certification of completion. Are you interested in taking your career to the next level? 
For a limited time, head to onemonth.com slash thebikeshed to get 10% off any coding course. Again, that's onemonth.com slash thebikeshed to get 10% off any coding course. Thanks to onemonth.com for supporting this episode of The Bike Shed and for supporting online education. But anyway, to uh, shift topics a little bit, you and I have, I think, different experience paths as we come to things. And I have some opinions, many of which I've shared on this here podcast. So I want to talk to you about a few topics, largely in the like distributed systems, sure. et cetera, space. Yep. The first topic that I would love to poke at is uh, JWTs, JavaScript Web Tokens. Yep. My experience with them has generally been poor. I have really not enjoyed it. And I think it's because every time I've seen them, they are distributing more information about the user than I think makes Mm -hmm. sense. Mm -hmm. But you have been more of a fan. Yeah, I've had a a fairly good experience with them. And actually, before we dig in too much, do you mind giving a quick synopsis of what JWTs are and what hole they fill in the world? Sure, I can do my best. So a JWT, as you mentioned, JSON Web Token, is a effectively a string of data that is encoded and signed. So it is not encrypted, though there is a version of JWTs that are encrypted, mm-hmm. but typically they're not. So you can inspect the payload. There's also a header or a set of headers. And the header and the payload get signed in such a way that if anyone tampers with the header or the payload, you can detect that that has been tampered with by inspecting the signature. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people will use JWTs very similarly to a cookie, mm-hmm. where it effectively contains some information about a user. And that JWT is often sent in an authorization header. So a request comes into a web server, the JWT is inside the authorization header, we unpack that JWT, we verify that the signature is correct, we look inside the JWT and say, great, who's making this request? A lot of times it'll contain a user ID, and so we can go and look up that user, maybe we set the current user now in our controller or wherever we are. I think what you alluded to is sometimes people put a lot of extra information in mm. there. So sometimes you'll see like, oh, admin true. And so now we we know that this user is an admin. And it's okay to trust that generally because we can verify the signature of the JWT. And as long as we're the only people signing that JWT, as long as we've kept the secret that we use to sign the JWT with secure, then we should be able to trust it. I think it can get tricky, especially if you start putting extra information in there. You know, maybe you put the username, you put other things in there. Right. Things can get out of sync. And I think that's probably where a lot of these problems stem from. Yeah, I think my concern is less about trust because it seems like a safe mechanism with the exception that there's a little bit of looseness in the specification mm-hmm. where there's a, a signature and that signature can be none or the signing sure. method can yep. be none. That's just part of the standard. It's like, oh. Maybe we didn't think that yeah, one. That's, that's an important piece. If you're if you're using JWTs out there, when you decode that JWT, please make sure that you set which algorithms are valid. Yeah, uh, and, and none should and, not and be none on that not. list for a production system or really any system ever. Yep, we all have SHA two fifty six at our disposal or whichever yep. signing method we want. I don't actually know. That would be a one way hash function. This is yeah, it's all based on hashing and and that sort of thing. But yeah. there is a a secret key that you generally input. Yeah. The other option is to use RSA public private key pairs. Oh, interesting. Um, which is a pretty neat uh, usage of JWTs that I have a little experience with. Hmm. Yeah, because otherwise there is a secret and it is shared between all applications that need to verify the value. Is that right? Yep. I think typically what happens is the server will sort of keep the secret. Mm -hmm. It'll, It'll create a JWT and then hand it off to someone. 
and now someone else can use that JWT, typically passing it back to the server at some later point in time. So think like a web server and perhaps an iOS client where the iOS client takes a username and password on mm -hmm. the behalf of a user, logs in, and receives a JWT in response. They can now use that JWT to make actions and do things on behalf of the user. In distributed systems, you might actually set up a scenario where you have a public and private key pair that are on two separate machines where mm -hmm. the private key for my server is kept secure with me and I might publish my public key. And then you could create JWTs using my public key and I can verify then that they are valid by using my private key. The downside to that is if anyone can sign them, I can't use them as a means of establishing trust, <laughs> but I can verify that there is some amount of cooperation between us. Mm -hmm. Like we know who you are and we can verify right. that it is you at a minimum. Yep. Whether or not we trust you is a different question, but yeah. I guess I don't have an answer as to what I would prefer. I, actually, I think I do. The systems that I have preferred will often use OAuth as the mechanism. So there's some external mechanism for identifying a user. Like internally at ThoughtBot, we build a lot of internal products and then we use Google Auth as right. our mechanism for Auth. But all it does is say, yes, definitively in a trustworthy manner, this user is Chris Toomey. And then the system of interest, say our internal tool for tracking projects and whatnot called Hub, that then has a record of me and keeps that user record. Current user references that internal thing. We only need to interact once to authenticate. And then from there, we're just authenticated. It's a normal cookie-based auth mechanism. Yep. And so we have centralized authentication, but not centralized authorization. And right. I think the centralized authorization is the thing that feels wrong to me in most of the places that I've run into it that feels like, ah, oh, it's subtly wrong. Caching got out of date. I have more access yeah. than this. Oh, I have to log. I have to clear my cookies. That shouldn't be true or any number of things like that. Yep. And I think specifically with JWTs, my experience has not been in that, that realm of right. saying, okay, we're going to encode all of the permissions mm -hmm. for this user. We did have a little bit of that where we had some pieces of information. And in our case, that was really beneficial because it allowed us to skip some database queries. Mm -hmm. We were at a volume where by encoding a little bit of that information into the JWT, you know, we saved several million database requests over the course of a day. I hear databases are super good at queries, though. Uh, they're pretty good, you know. No, <laughs> but no, no that, shade that, thrown at and databases. And also, I mean, there's like the HTTP round trip. I assume was also associated there, in addition to the database query, or is it just is it still within the same system? I think in this case, the JWT sort of came as part of the request, and so okay. once we had the JWT, we had some information in it. But I do agree that generally, I would prefer to sort of keep some ID in mm -hmm. the JWT and treat it as a means of identification rather than means of authorization. Right. I think we're, we're starting to bump up into another topic here, which is distributed systems mm -hmm. and sort of an SOA world. You have had more positive experiences in that world than I have. So I'm intrigued. What, what was the shape of the system or systems that you've worked on in the past that you felt like had an architecture that you enjoyed? Oh, that's, that's a tricky question. That's what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> so in the past, I've worked on uh, some distributed systems that basically all of these systems wanted a shared understanding of the world. They were several different Rails apps and also some other non-Rails apps. And they all needed to have a shared understanding of the different domain objects in the world. And the way we accomplished that was using sort of back-channel message passing. So we were using RabbitMQ, and we were passing information from one system to another. So each system was responsible or the owner of a particular domain object. Uh, say users are a great example. So all user interaction that updated the user record happened on a particular system, and then that system would send out updates to all of the other systems that wanted to know about a user. 
And there was quickly a sort of network effect where mm. as different systems were the owners of different domain objects, they all needed to disseminate that information amongst themselves. And you kind of got this web effect. And that's a really hard problem to solve. <laughs> it's a very interesting thing. It was incredibly fun and incredibly challenging to work on. And I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I think distributed systems work best when there's only one direction of information flow. Mm -hmm. So I know one of the things that we had here at ThoughtBot on Upcase was we had like a diff creator, diff, diff viewer, parser. diff parser. Parse the diffs. Oh gosh, it goes the other way. And that only having information that kind of flowed in one direction, mm -hmm. I think was the right choice. Once you have like circular dependencies in a distributed system, it becomes incredibly difficult to reason about. It becomes incredibly difficult to manage, uh, especially sort of as like time goes on. Mm. <laughs> so as you migrate the schemas and things like that, as you evolve your schemas, add new fields, or potentially have to remove fields, it's very difficult to track down which consumers still need those fields, which consumers don't care about any of it, that sort of thing. That all makes sense. To give another example of something that I think, like the diff parser worked well, but it was also we were just making synchronous requests to it and we would just like say, hey, parse this diff and it would give us back some data, mm -hmm. which is, a, I think, an interesting example of something that worked well. But I think an even better one is over the holidays, we have our annual hackathon sort of thing and you worked on an internal search project which used Elasticsearch, I think, is the primary technology at play yep. there. But that one's interesting because it's basically just a downstream consumer of information. It's regularly polling might be the way. I'm not sure what the architecture is. But Elastic is now a leaf node in the graph of all of just the information in our world. And it works incredibly well. Like yeah. Information just gets out there eventually. And maybe it's going to be very slightly out of date. But it's fantastic. And Elasticsearch is so much better at that job than anything yeah. else. Yep. Yeah, and that was a really fun project to work on. It was sort of very fast-paced, and we kind of pivoted halfway through. <laughs> but getting all of the information in there was sort of one step, and then having a central place to pull it out was another. And not having that loop or not having any sort of odd dependency direction flow stuff really made that project successful. Yeah, We've had a search app within ThoughtBot for a long time that would search across different GitHub repos, it would look in the blog, it would look on various Trello boards. So we, there's a lot of information in the world of ThoughtBot. And it's nice, especially as people are joining the team, for them to be able to find it. So search.thoughtbot.com, it's an internal thing, so don't necessarily go to that URL, but it's that's what this thing is. And the previous version was, I think it was a Rails app that was live when you would run a search, it would, in the background, make a request to a bunch of different things, yeah. say like, hey, GitHub, what do you think about this? Hey, Trello, hey, whatever, and then aggregate, compile those results, and then render a results page. And we transitioned to Elasticsearch, which was really interesting because the initial version was unusable. Just the amount of data that was there, it was particularly Trello, which was a very recent addition to both APIs. but. The addition of Trello, there's just so much information, so many words in our Trello, that if you type the word job, there will be a hundred Trello cards that match before we got anything else. Right. But what was interesting was once that foundation was in place, there were two small tweaks that were made, I think in the last week, to add sub-filtering and then a little bit of weighting. Yep. Um, particularly the weighting was a really interesting one. Just tweaking the index a little bit, which Elasticsearch is fantastic at. And suddenly I type things in and it's like it knows what I'm thinking. It's it's pretty scary, right? And it's a case of like that technology is the right choice yeah. for that problem. And I have implemented search, particularly in Upcase, in Postgres. Mm -hmm. So we have our Postgres database. Everything's happy. This is my dream of all the data in one place. And Postgres can do full text search. It's actually pretty good at it considering that that's not its job. But nowhere near as good as Elastic. 
Yeah, it's it's really nice to have tools that are purpose built and use those tools for uh, mm. their intended purpose. I think it's when you kind of either pick a technology and and don't want to stray from that, or you pick the wrong technology or try to make it do something it's not really intended for, where you can run into trouble. But that in and of itself is difficult. Yeah, a related technology that uh, I've seen you having some interest in lately is Kafka, and particularly as sort of a replacement for RabbitMQ or something in a similar space. Yeah. What are your thoughts in, in that world? So I'm very interested in Kafka, and I think it's because of some of that past experience I mentioned with you know distributed systems and having these cyclical dependencies. One of the ideas that I've been really intrigued about recently is moving all of your data down so it has a sort of central set of truth and moving that into a system like Kafka rather than having it be stored in Postgres. Mm -hmm. So the idea here, and a lot of people might call this event sourcing or event streaming, it has many different names and there's a wide variety of uses. But particularly putting all of the information into an immutable log, which is what Kafka is, Mm -hmm. I think is very appealing to me. Once you pull information off that log and maybe store it in Postgres, it kind of becomes a cache of that data, Mm -hmm. which then your Rails applications could perhaps use, and that cache gets updated as the data changes. The interesting part of it to me, I think, is that it allows you to format your data or index your data according to the application that needs it. So storing the sort of canonical truth in Kafka, but then pulling it out and storing it in a format that is specific to your Rails application or the needs of a particular distributed service, I think gives you a lot of flexibility and performance benefits and makes things a little bit easier to reason about. Mm -hmm. You use the phrase pulling it off, but I think in the world of Kafka, you're reading that data, but because it's an immutable commit log, that data is still there. Whereas in contrast to Rabbit, which you were describing before, that is an actual queue that you're popping off of. And you have to consume that message and acknowledge it. And there's complexity inherent to that that you then have to manage. And Kafka reminds me very much of Git. And I love that this morning I I was going off on a tangent with another developer here about just commit, just always commit and get. And once you do, you're safe. You can't like, we will always get that data back. I mean, unless it's been a couple of weeks and you haven't talked about that commit in forever. But once you commit, Git has such a beautiful, simple foundational layer that unfortunately the user interface and the CLI is both, eh, (laughs) that one got away from us. But the foundational layer, that object model inherent to it is so clean and pure and I think just great. And Kafka feels similar. I don't actually know what it looks like to build systems in it. I'm super excited to figure that out. But I love that foundational idea. Yeah, and that was really one of the things that drew me to Kafka is once I started sort of reading the documentation about it, reading some blog posts, it felt like a bit of a paradigm shift from what I was used to. And as you mentioned, I was used to putting messages in a queue and pulling them out of the queue. And and the messages are not quite physical thing, but Mm -hmm. you think of them that way where you pull it out of the queue and it's no longer there. But with Kafka, those things are persisted for some period of time. And you can choose to rewind and replay. And it being immutable is such a powerful concept that I think it really opens up a a world of possibilities that weren't quite possible before. Disk space seems to be getting cheaper and cheaper. So I'm a believer in all things being immutable. Yep. Don't know the full ramifications of that statement, but it seems like a good idea. One honking good idea. We should have more of those. So real quick is one last thing, uh, circling back to how we started the episode, my rambling on about my computer breaking and then reinstalling and updating all of the things. I did something that I normally do, which is I searched for something on the internet. I found a string of text and then I put it into my command line and I Mm. ran it. Uh, I do this a lot. I download a lot of other people's code and then I run it on my computer. 
And I'm going to be honest, I'm amazed how often that works and isn't a problem and doesn't have giant security holes. I was going to say, it feels like it's a thing that shouldn't work and that we should never do, but here we do it all the time. It must be that we're not a big enough target pool. Like there are easier folks to just send like phishing emails to. And that's if someone's going to be a bad actor, there are better targets than developers. That said, knowing that we often have like credentialed access into systems feels like we might be on a way. I don't want to encourage anything. So (laughs) listeners, you're all good people and you won't do that. But I I am surprised. And the particular one that's coming to mind is the event stream, I think was the package. And I forget the specifics, but can you remind me of? Yeah, so my understanding of this is there was uh, a package that was a dependency of several other packages. I believe the one in question was called EventStream. And it was a, a package that somebody didn't really want to maintain or they didn't have the time to. And so they handed it off to somebody else who opened a pull request as a way of sort of allowing that package to continue. The person they handed it off to, though, was a bad actor, (laughs) and they introduced some code into that package that made it malicious. It was, I think, specifically targeting Bitcoin wallets. And because this particular package was a dependency of others, it ended up getting included in who knows how many different, you know, NPM installations. It ended up getting included in some number of, you know, node projects. Yep. It's more than Node these days, like not just the back end thing, but all front end. And yeah, Yeah. it was on a lot of computers. Yep. I've read blog posts about people saying like, hey, this is a thing we could do. We Mm -hmm. could introduce a malicious code, push it out as a dependency and steal people's credit cards or steal anything that we can get our hands on. And it's, I think, fascinating to me that we aren't all panicked over this. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of keeps working until it doesn't but like heartbleed when that happened it was like oh man everything is broken in such a fundamental way or recent some of the kernel exploits that have been happening and the patches but it is surprising to me that things do continue to work and that we we are able to have computers and nice things but this particular one there was a, a blog post that you were talking about one day at lunch of the like sequence of well okay but that's fine we're protected because of this reason and then it's like oh no actually right right someone saying okay i've created a malicious package and uh you know it's going to steal your credit cards and you say well you know i can look at the source code because mm-hmm. it's it's open source and the counter there is well you know the source code that's open source isn't what i actually published to npm and then you say okay well i can unminify the the source code and i can look at it and, and well, then there's obfuscation methods there mm-hmm. that make it really difficult to understand what the code is actually doing. So there's this whole series of... It's it's an arms race, essentially. Yeah. And this particular case, the, the NPM package that we were describing, if I remember correctly, they were using the text contents of the readme as a two-way encryption key so that like the code was obfuscated by virtue of the decryption key was the contents of the readme. Yeah, it was either the the contents of the readme or perhaps like the description of the package right. that they so, were targeting. Yes. Right, something so, that was downloaded with it. But then yeah. if you didn't, like, I don't actually know how anyone figured that out also. That's a it was, good get, everybody. It was amazing to watch that unfold on GitHub. I was, <laughs> I was actually like watching the thread. And so people would be commenting and saying like, hey, I compiled a list of all of the packages on NPM and their names. And like someone else wrote a thing to go through them and attempt the decryption with yep. each of those names as a key. Was this like by the power of WebSockets, new things were appearing on yep. your screen? And yep. uh, wow, it's like esports, but for developers. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not what our, our fun time is. I don't are. know, live hacking and like having uh, live tweeting and... I know my brother watches basketball, but when I say watches basketball, I mean he follows a few people on Twitter that are talking about the statistics and statistical analysis, but live tweeting of basketball games, which when he told me that, I was like, "Ah, okay. (laughs) 
That's a world we live in. I might watch that for hacking or the other side of it. Sure. Yeah, hacking and then fighting against and, yeah. and patching the exploits. And it's interesting, though. I think NPM is particularly vulnerable to this due to the tiny, tiny package size and the number, the sheer volume of packages yeah. that like, a couple hundred is a high bar on a Rails project. I would say many Rails projects probably have that, maybe more, but thousands is the default yep. for like a basic React app. And yeah. That's amazing, that that complexity in the fit. And like just one of those, one little tiny leaf node in that dependency graph. If you can exploit that, then you can get in and it's a whole world there. Scary world, but I think for the most part, people are empathetic and good people and we're all trying to do the right thing. Yep. Uh, so hopefully the world that we live in continues to move on and be prosperous. There's a fantastic episode of the React podcast recently with Lori Voss, who is... I believe the chief data officer of NPM. Mm -hmm. And so started it way back when. And the idea was like, Node, that's a thing. It's JavaScript on the server, and that's what we're going to do. And it's a package manager for that. And my goodness, is that not what it is anymore? And the way the world has just shifted, and the thing that they thought they were going to be, it's just not. And they've just had to keep up. And they have constraints that I hadn't even imagined. It was really interesting to hear him talk about the... Um, the process and just the history of that whole project right. and everything and, and the complexity that they face. And yeah, it's a complicated, we'll, we'll certainly link that up in the show notes, but it was really interesting to get a peek behind the curtain of what they're doing there. Sure. I would love to see more of that. You know, I would love to mm. see more companies sort of bring out that empathetic side and say, yeah. hey, we are people. This is These are the problems we have to deal with. Here's mm -hmm. how we're trying to tackle them, that sort of thing. And I think it really sheds a different light on our industry as a whole. Yep. Well, with that, I think that's a wonderful note on which to end. Ebs, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for this or any of the other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed, or you can reach me at Chris Toomey on Twitter, or you can email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.